0: I want to thank you for your kind welcome this morning and for allowing me to come to minister the Word to you, and I want to begin by immediately trying your patience uh, and have you stand to give honor to the reading of God's Word from, as you read in your bulletins from Job 38 through Job 40, verse 5. So would you please stand together with me to honor the reading of God's Word and hear the speech of the Lord in its entirety. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here, you shall, <coughs> and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment." For the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow and have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Where is the way to the place where the light is distributed and where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who is cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Here has the rain a father. Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From, whom, from whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Masroth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? Do You know the ordinances of the heavens. Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings? That they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clod sticks fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Or do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes? Or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? Or will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The Wings of the ostrich wave proudly. But are they the pinions of plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and rider. Do You give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin with fierceness and rage. he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. is Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. And the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word in its entirety. and We thank you for your speech. We ask that by your spirit we would understand it in right ways that give you glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. One of my favorite books that I have ever read as far as secular books go is one called How the News Makes Us Dumb, The Death of Wisdom in an Information Age. It's by a historian named C. John Somerville. He hasn't contributed a, a, a lot that I know of, but his title captures a very good premise. It, It it, it reminds us of something that that we need to hear, that we are rarely near the truth based on what we read or for that matter what we see or even hear in the daily news. This isn't a a denial of of facts like someone got shot or what the temperature is going to be or that a law was passed. it's, It's not that there's a problem with mere facts like that, but it's that we have to recognize that we haven't understood or interpreted those things correctly. Certainly not by hearing the news. We don't understand motives. We don't understand consequences. We don't get ramifications and the way in which events are related to other events are related to other events. Those are simply beyond our comprehension. And so just because we've been exposed to something doesn't tell us that we actually know anything about it. Think about this. If the newsmakers, if they ever stopped and reflected on the accuracy of their reporting maybe a month or so later you would find out that many details were wrong. There, there might even be, if the lawyers didn't get involved, there might even be some repentance along the way. Nothing against lawyers, they have a purpose. But know this, understanding takes time. It takes perspective. It takes reflection. It takes a, a, a wider gathering of information than what we might initially be presented with. And and we have to do these things in order to understand what's, what are the provocations and purposes of things in the world. We just don't know at the, pre- at the presentation of those things. And that's hard to allow ourselves to be in that place where we say, I don't know anything yet, that I have to wait, that, that, that understanding is going to come later. We don't want to wait for it. We think we should know immediately right away and we think our first impressions are the best. The book of Job is especially helpful in trying to humble ourselves in our appreciation of facts. It's a reminder for, from beginning to end that we don't know everything just because we have seen something. And, and so it's useful for us to humble us in this way. And this is where I hope we'll go this morning as we look at this first speech of God, Let me give you just a brief outline. I'm going to review the book of Job because you don't have context for this. And so I'll remind you, you probably have a passing familiarity, but sometimes we don't know about everything that's, that's, that's going on in the middle. And I want to, to point you to the fact of how God is speaking to Job, where he speaks from. And then three aspects of creation that God reveals in his speech that are designed to teach Job and to humble Job. And then we'll see how Job responds at the end of this. Quick quick review of the book of Job. If you scan the pages of Job, if you go back to the beginning, chapter 1, you would find out that Job is a little bit of narrative and a whole lot of poetry. We generally know the story of Job by what we know of of the narrative. Uh, And in knowing that, we have this, this sort of idea of what the book of Job is about, but it's really in the central portion when we get into that, that extended poetry that we learn what the book of Job is for. And nowhere is that more true than when we come to the end of the book and to these speeches of God where God finally breaks in to, 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 to give his answer to all of those facts that have been assessed, to give his understanding of those things. And it's not going to be a speech that's entirely satisfying on the level at which you might expect it to be. But it's deeply satisfying when you understand it rightly. So what's the story of Job? Job was, was a, a godly man, a righteous man. He was a man who was greatly loved, highly respected. He was universally accounted by those around him as the most righteous man alive. And he also has, along with that, that kind of superlative righteousness, he also has sort of a superlative wealth. He is fabulously and famously wealthy. People know him by his possessions. And on top of that, not only does, do people respect him and, and, and think he is an incredibly wise man, and not only does he own a lot of stuff, but he also has what is considered a perfect family. He has a lovely wife, he has seven sons and three daughters. Like these are biblically kind of perfect numbers. You put those together for a perfect number of ten. Like it's just, it's screaming. Everything in this man's life is perfect. But after being introduced to Job and and finding out of his station in life, we're immediately taken from earth up into heaven. And we're we're invited into a court scene in heaven, a heavenly court scene, a royal court, where God is there and coming before him are angelic beings. And one of those angelic beings is the great accuser, the deceiver, the Satan. He is literally the Hebrew for, for, for Satan in this is the Satan. And he comes before God, and the conversation is initiated not by Satan, but by God himself. Some people pass that part, but God is the one who initiates, and he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, yes, I have. In fact, I I, I know some things about him. I know that he's the kind of guy that if 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 you take away from him, he will curse you. The only reason that he's good, the only reason he's righteous is because you give him a lot of really nice stuff. And that's why. Take it away and see what happens. And so the Lord grants the opportunity for Satan to afflict Job and inflict him. He does. He comes to suffer more than any man that you know of. He goes from being the wisest and wealthiest and most respected man to someone who is an embarrassment even to the dregs of society. In the poetry, you find out how how the lowest of of the low mock him. They, they ridicule him. They, 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 they use his name as a curse. Job, whenever Satan abuses him, comes to lose all that he possesses, including those ten dear children. He loses all of his money. He becomes a childless, penniless, boil-covered man who is sitting on the ash heap, literally sitting on the, in the city dump, scraping himself with broken shards of pottery. The description is that he is covered with boils from his head to his toe. I, I won't make you raise your hand if you've ever had one boil, but imagine being covered head to toe with these. One thing Job does have friends, his friends, his wife quickly abandons him. She, she tells him, Job, curse God and die. Just, just go ahead and just get it over with because we know that you have done something to invite this upon yourself. But Job has friends and Job's friends come to him. They come from far off places and they themselves are wise men and they are good friends. They come into his presence and they mourn with Job for seven days. When have you ever mourned with anyone for, for, for more than a passing few hours? But they come to him, they sit by his side for seven days, and they sit in silence. They prove themselves to be good friends. But after a time of silence, Job finally, finally breaks the tension in the room. And he begins to speak, and Job chapter 3 is, is a pouring out of one of the most pathetic, most lamentable, or most, uh, uh, pathetic laments in all of Scripture. It is horrible the kind of things that Job says there. He actually, he curses the day of his birth. Not only does he say that's a bad day, he says, God, you should have blotted out this day. It needs to not exist. It needs to be removed from time and space and history so that no longer exists. That day is so bad. And as he laments his condition, he laments how he's fallen, he laments what he's lost and the misery that he's in, his friends decide, okay, this is too much. We have to do an intervention. And so they stage an intervention, and they begin to talk to him. And this is what what, what, what launches into the poetic portions of the book, the, these middle chapters. They spend about 31 chapters doing one thing. They have a lot of words in which they do it, but they're doing one thing. They're trying to convince Job it's time to repent. Because they look at his life, and, and they do what is obvious to everyone who would look at his life, life, is they look at him and they say, Job, you have done something to deserve this. You, there's no way anyone would... who was where you were in life. There's no way anyone could fall that far and suffer so greatly if he has not really invited this from God. And they start out with kind of subtleties and just, kind of, maybe you could think about this, Job, and maybe, maybe if you just a little reflect here just a little bit on this, you might come up with something that's kind of hidden secretly in your life that might point you to repenting to God. But if we know, if we go back to the beginning of the book, Job was righteous. Scripture says there was nothing that he had done that was worthy of condemnation. God, God had announced it. Satan agreed with it. Yeah, he's a righteous guy, but take his stuff away and see what happens. And so the, the friends are, are begging him to repent. And eventually they, they launch into a full-blown accusation, just, just saying how horrible and terrible and suggesting the kind of things that Job might have done. And all of this, Job is standing his ground saying, I, I have nothing to repent of. I don't deserve this. This should not be happening to me. And what you find out from their discussions is that there's a common theology that's at work between both Job and his friends, and it's this theology of retribution. It's this idea that people get what's coming to them. And if you're good, you get good things. And if you're bad, you get bad things. And Job, you've obviously been very bad on some level because very bad things are happening to you. And to some extent, Job, Job agrees with them. He says, I'm suffering, but I shouldn't be suffering. I don't deserve what's happening to me. I I I have been righteous, and I, I stand firm. And what Job begins to do, and what, what he he begins to plead for throughout the book, is he wants an audience. He just needs to 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 go face to face with God. If he can just have a conversation, then he can put God right. He can show him how somehow the Sovereign Almighty. That he, there are no non-Calvinists in this book. Everybody is a sovereignty man all the way. The the good guys, the bad guys, Satan. Everyone agrees that God is sovereign over all things. But Job says, yes, God, I'm suffering because of what, what you brought into my life. But I don't think you meant to. And if we can just if we can just get a, a record of the case, if I can just set the evidence before you, if, if I could just, you know, ha, have an advocate to, to plead with me that someone that could stand. If I had a lawyer to represent me, a, a lawyer capital L that, that could represent me, or maybe I just have to have to do it myself, then we can fix this. But it's not fixed. It's not repaired. It, it, the, the conversation goes on. The friends eventually give up. They, they, they decide it's pointless to argue with Job. And they, 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 they walk away in frustration. There's another guy that comes along, Elihu, a young man who jumps into the picture. And we know this about him as he's an angry young man. And he has a few good points that he makes. He, he extols the sovereignty of God. But he ends up going to the same place of saying, Job, basically, yeah, I think the same thing is true, is that you probably need to repent. One of the things that's interesting about Elihu, that's kind of a setup for our passage this morning, is that Job had contend or that, that Elihu had contended a couple of things. So turning your Bibles back to, to Job 35, verse 9. A few chapters back, Elihu said, Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. is clear. He says, Job, get over it. God is not going to talk to you. You just give up on trying to hear from God. Just go back and just repent because you're a wicked man and he doesn't hear from wicked people. And so just, just, just give up on God. And in that way, he sets us up for what we come to this morning, which is the speech in the book. This is the end of the poetic sections. This is, this is the end of all those things in between. Remember, this very big book has just a little bit of narrative on each end. That's not where it's about. It's about what happens in the poetry in the middle. And so we have two and a half chapters, about 770 words, 2,000 English words in your translation where God begins to speak. And how does he speak? Well, look, at, look back in our, in our chapter, chapter 38, verses 1 through 3. When you remember what Elihu was saying, if you go back in the context, you actually would find out that, that he was actually saying it in the context of a rising storm. It's like if you, were, if you were sitting there as Elihu is speaking saying, and he's saying, yeah, God is not going to talk to you. And all the while these, these clouds are rolling in and, and you begin to hear thunder in the, diff, in, in the distance. And, 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 and you can see the darkness of the rain that's beginning to pour out in sheets and it's making its way towards exactly where they are. And then you come to verse 1 of chapter 38. It says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. I grew up in Central Texas. It is a land filled with tornadoes and hailstorms, which you probably cannot imagine from here. I've seen vehicles just completely destroyed, trucks in which all the windows were broken out. Scary stuff when you're in that kind of a storm. I lived in Minot, North Dakota. Why not Minot? Freezing's the reason is the answer to that. If you make military people in here. Uh, I've been in blizzards. I've seen 100 below with the wind chill, not not actual, but with the wind chill. Uh, and it's, it's a frightening thing when the wind is howling at that level and you know that just I could be covered up in snow in just a few minutes. It's, it's frightening and it makes you question your safety. And here is, here is not a mere blizzard in North Dakota or a hailstorm in Texas or a hurricane here along the coast, which I know that you're familiar with. Here is, is the tempest in which God appears and that tempest is focused on one person, on Job. Hard to imagine how frightening that would be, and what does God do? He says in verse two, "Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge?" Have you ever been guilty of that sin? Probably not. I mean, have you ever accused me? Don't you darken words with counsel without knowledge with me, young man? Get back. You, you've probably never accused anyone of that, but it's scary, right? Whatever it is, it, it's it's frightening because it's coming from the tempest. It's this whole idea of darkening counsel by words. Without knowledge. And what God is is saying is that He's saying to Job, Job, you have confused the issue. You have spoken about me, and you have spoken about me in ignorance. Anything that you said that, that was true, it, it, it's covered up, it's obscured because of the things that you've said around it. You, you have done a wrong here. So, so Job has been, the, the, the book of Job has been filled with all of these accusations against Job and what he might have done. But now here is the one who has the right perspective, the one who sees all things from heaven and knows Job and speaks to him. And he says, this is your sin. You have darkened counsel by words without knowledge. You have covered up the truth by spewing ignorance. You thought you knew, but you didn't know. Some of Job's accusations you find in the book, he accused God, of course, as we said from chapter 3 of making a mistake and allowing him to be born. In Job 7.11, he, he complains against God in the bitterness of his soul, it says. In Job 7.17, he questions God for his involvement in the affairs of men. He says, God, just leave people alone if this is how you're going to treat them. Job 10.3, he calls God an oppressor. God, who is the deliverer of oppressors, he calls God an oppressor. In Job 19.6, he says, no, God, you have wronged me. And Job has said these things confidently. He, he, he has said, in, in a sense, that God is too transcendent to care, that he shouldn't care, and, and, and he shouldn't be involved, he, that he's just, he should leave things alone, but then he's so transcendent that he doesn't care. He's just far away, and, he's, and somehow he's ignorant of what's going on in Job's life. Yeah, he's got power over it, but he's not paying attention because he's so far away. God wouldn't hear me. God God doesn't know. I have to shout to him and yell at him and complain to him to get an audience. Listen to these words in Job 9.16. Job says, if I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe he was listening to my voice. I don't think God would hear me. He says, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause he will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. He says on the one hand, God's not listening. He's not paying attention. He doesn't know what's going on with me. And on the other hand, he says that God is destroying me with the tempest, with the storm. And what's going on in our passage this morning, the exact opposite is taking place. Here is God in the tempest. The, tempest, the storm is raging around him, and yet Job lives. And here's God speaking to him out of the storm, saying, You have darkened counsel with words without knowledge. Job, I have heard you. I was listening all along to every single word, and now I'm going to tell you what you are getting wrong. Maybe you can appreciate what Job was experiencing, what it, what it was like to suffer greatly. We, we've had the, we've had we've had pains that we've invited upon ourselves. Just nod your head, sinner. Yes, you took vows before the church. Most of you, where you acknowledged it on the front end. Yes, I need Jesus. And you've invited consequences in your life, but, but you also know the pain of consequences from living in a fallen world, those things that you didn't deserve. You didn't deserve to have that bully be mean to you when you showed up in sixth grade. You, you should have you had better, but here was a mean person who made you a target. And, and you should have gotten that contract, and you shouldn't have this disease that, that's now ravaging your body. And some of those things are just consequences of living in a fallen world, and you can appreciate it wanting to cry out to God and say, why are you not delivering me from this mess. Well, now God gives an answer. He says to Job, "Gird up your loins as a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me." He says, "Dress yourself like for action." But but what he's saying is is tuck in your robe into your belt, the kind of thing that you do when you have to fight or when you have to flight. <laughs> Either one of those is you know fighting doesn't seem like a good option in the presence of God. Running would seem good, even with boil covered fil- feet. Now. Now Job is going to have to stand there and take it. That's the action God wants. And the Lord is saying, you have a lot to say about me. And you have a lot to say to me. And now I'm going to respond to you. There's no way to soft pedal this. This is not Jesus gentle and lowly speaking to Job. This is the Lord of glory in the tempest, the sovereign Lord speaking out of the storm to Job. And he overwhelms him with the truth. And here, here's, here are the elements of truth. When he speaks to him, he wants to talk about his creation, which is such a strange thing to do. Here's the man who's been suffering, who's, who's been tormented by Satan, who's had all these elements of his life destroyed. And what does the Lord do? He talks about animals. And he talks about, about, about a trip to the zoo. Let's just kind of going to go and we're going to see all of, the, of these, these non-domesticated, outside the, you know, outside the ranch kind of animals. He begins first by, by talking about the foundation of the earth in, in Job 38, 4 to 21. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. The answer is, I wasn't there. I, I, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't a part of that conversation. I wasn't invited to see that. In fact, no one else was when this was going on. And that's followed by 15 more fifteen more questions that go into great detail about the, the, those those first three creation days, describing elements of those, that there was complete nothing, that came something, that there was disorder and, uh, that, that, and chaos, and, and the Lord brought order out of that. And that this was all done in the wisdom of God, such as is testified in Proverbs chapter 8. We read in Proverbs 8.22, The Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of His works, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth, and there were no springs abounding with water. The Lord testifies to, to how He is making all things and He makes all things in wisdom. Nothing that exists came into being without the wisdom of God. It was all intentional, all purposeful, all according to an ultimate design of things. He also says something else there. He talks about the, the, the celebration of light over darkness. Where Job had lamented the day of his birth and he had... He had actually prayed and called for a curse for, the, for the, that day to be swallowed up with darkness, for his birthday to be swallowed up in darkness. How many of you have ever wanted that? I, I don't think that's a common experience. But God speaks of light being his way, not, not darkness. He says in verse 38, 7, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He says, Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the, the dawn to know its place? He says, where is the way of the dwelling of light? He, he draws attention to, to, to light. And this is the opposite of Job who darkens counsel without knowledge. He, he, he is hiding truth. As, as Paul would say to the Romans, he is suppressing truth and unrighteousness. Job has pessimism and fatalism and, and these become a sin against God. And Some of you need to be reminded here, some, some of you do actually like to be where Job is. You like the darkness. You want to be grumpy. You want the cloud to remain. You want to live kind of in that that victim place. Woe is me how awful my life is. But here here is God calling on someone who has suffered far more than you have ever suffered and saying, you're speaking wrongly, Job. Light rules. Order is made out of chaos. I am at work. Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life as a believer part of our design who we are as redeemed people are to is to walk in the light to walk in knowledge to walk in truth to walk in wisdom to own and call the the, the world in which we are experiencing a blessing from God even when it's painful he goes on in the next section he he it's a celebration of God's sovereignty over the heavens Job 38 to 38 and it, it, what's interesting here is the ancient Hebrews had sort of three levels of heaven they talked about The first heaven being the sky where the the birds and the clouds are. The second heaven being up in space where the stars are, what you see in the night sky that's kind of beyond reach. And then the third heaven being where God himself is. And in this chapter, you actually have all of those where attention is drawn to each one to say God is sovereign over every one of these, which is to say there is no place where you can go where God is not the Lord, where he is not sovereign over all things. And then the third realm is the one he spends the most time on is God's dominion over the creatures. And Job talks about lions and ravens and wild goats and deer and donkeys and oxen or wild oxen ostriches horses hawks and eagles. He, and he lists off this catalog of animals and again if you were, if you're not paying attention Job was a rancher. Job had sheep and camels and, and he, had, he had domesticated donkeys and and this was his life is like he knew about livestock but here's now a parade of animals that, that he's seeing a little bit like like you know Adam in the garden seeing and giving names to these animals. Here is this parade of animals that comes before Job where he, he is seeing these things but he's hearing aspects of them that are not part of his world. Maybe you, you, you like nature shows, I don't know if you've ever watched those, but you know somewhere there there's a a writer and a producer and a director and a photographer or videographer that that goes in and they hone in on on some little narrow aspect of, of one creature, and maybe it's you know some kind of bacteria, and they talk about this thing, and you follow it around, and you go, wow, I didn't know anything about the life of bacteria, or, or maybe it's you know maybe it's Shark Week, and, and you get you know a whole week of coverage on this one animal that we talk about nonstop. If you have the Discovery Channel, you can just watch that uh, all week long and just keep learning all of these new things. And I don't know if you if you're like me and uh, my wife and myself. But we have this kind of stupid response every time we do we do we watch these shows. We go, I know you're not supposed to say you're stupid, but it's in it's in Proverbs 30. Agger says it about himself, it's biblical. But we have this stupid response where we go, I never knew that. Wow. And and it's kind of like we marvel that we were ignorant. Should we marvel that we're ignorant about this this tiny facet of, of creation? That is that you're exposed to that where you're drawn in to learn that there is this whole life that you didn't know about. There, there's this whole inter- e- ecology and these ecosystems, the interrelations of these different creatures and how they how they, they propagate and exist. And and this is what God is doing. In 2020, there were over 500 new species cataloged by Lon- London's Natural History Museum. 500 new species. I guess that's probably like an annual occurrence that they just oh we found 500 more. And what what, what God is saying here in this is that that I have given life to each one of these. Each one of these is known by me individually, not just as a species, but as an individual specimen. And each one of those is sustained by me. It's provided for life by me. That It carries on its existence because of who I am. I am the one who gives wisdom to these, or in the case of the ostrich, I take away wisdom. Wild goats and deer have no midwives, but they have lots of babies and they're doing just fine. Wild donkeys don't have houses to live in, but they get by. Wild oxen are terrible farmers, but they always have food. Ostriches, terrible moms, but we don't run out of ostriches. They're still floating around. Everything in this zoological world is thriving because of who God is and what he has done and designed and how he provides for these things. And then he jumps down to those, those last few animals in 39 the latter part the horse on the battleground how fearsome this is the hawk and the eagle I, I was an air force cadet and and i grew up in texas so i had a lot of exposure up close to both of those and it, you know you get up in the in the presence of a of a hawk or an eagle and even if it's domesticated or a horse even if it's domesticated and is serving men you look at this thing and you go wow that that is power that is packed into that what it is able to accomplish The horse's majestic snorting strikes terror in verse 20 of chapter 39. Hardly appropriate topic for a Sunday morning, but it says the eagle's youngs they suck up blood. Uh, Where the slain are, there he is. And each one of those animals deserves a library of research, and God knows it all. And so where does that go? Well, here's where it takes us. Job 40, verses 1 through 5. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God... Let him answer it. Job has contended with God. He has, he has looked to God in his distress. And this is one of the great victories that Job has throughout, is that for all he says, for all he, he's fighting for, he constantly is theocentric. He constantly is going back to God and saying, my problem is with you. And that's where he's right, and that's where he's to be celebrated, and that's where he's going to be celebrated when you come to the end of the book. This is where he spoke truly. God was sovereign over these things. It wasn't just a system in place, but it was personal. And Job never forgot that this was all personal. He knew he didn't have anything to repent of, nothing that deserved the chastening that, that he received, not that he, had, he was without sin. But his friends didn't believe that God intended suffering for an innocent. So, that, so they, in, based on their logic, he had to have done wrong. But Job, he held to, to basically the same belief that, that, that an innocent shouldn't suffer, but he thought that somehow God had just missed something, and Job's sin was is that his God was too small. He thought if he could just get the, the right information to God, this would fix it. But his God was a God that, that, that was worthy of fear, but was a God who could make mistakes. and A God who could not pay attention and a God who would sometimes accidentally let the righteous suffer. So he asked him, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes him, let him answer. What, what would you say to that? What's your answer back to God after seeing his sovereign power over all creation, after seeing his, his power that he speaks of in the storm, after his talk of the heavens or the making of the earth or of the, the different animals that inhabit the earth? Earlier in chapter 10, Job had said, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God. Do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Now Job says, behold, I am of small account. Some translations say, behold, I am vile, meaning I am am nothing. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and after. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job is no fool. He was paying attention. How could he not? But he's listening to every word that God says. And he comes to the conclusion after hearing of of the wonder of the diversity and and God's power in in ordering this world that that he has not been missed. That God did not miss a single detail in his life. That God knew exactly where he he was and what was going on with him. And, And he understands that and it's sufficient to make him put his hands over his mouth. His arguments are gone. His boldness has disappeared. He is silenced in the presence of God. And merely by the presence and power of God, his pain and his sorrow and his misery and his grief and his anger and his sense of injustice and his bitterness, all of those things are put in their place. There's an understanding that's come over him. God has overwhelmed Job with God. Is transcendence a word that, that you appreciate? Do you, do you know what it means that God is, is, is other, that he is distinct from you, that, that he is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind? You know, sometimes we do dis, misapply this and we think that God is too big or is too far away or has too many other matters to, to believe that he's actually concerned with the details of our lives. But, but what, what the text of Job is screaming out to you is to say is that no, God is so big that he can pay attention to every detail That there's not some, some corner of your life that he's missing out on, that he hasn't neglected you. Just because your experience of life this moment is not fun. God's transcendence extends to his abilities. He can't not see, he can't not know, he can't not care. God sees, God knows, and God cares, and that's always going to be true. And he wants something else, he wants you to rely on the Creator's wisdom. What he's saying here is he, as he puts all these creatures on display here. And realize this is simple. This is an ancient text. This is, this is given to someone with a simple world. It has to work off of you know, the rudimentary knowledge that they have. They've seen eagles and hawks and wild donkeys roaming about. And he uses those things to, to remind Job that there's this life outside of your life that you don't know about. There are things that are going on that you have no part of. And you might have thought you were something because, man, he was really good at what he did. I mean, the, 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 the thousands that he had... In terms of animals that he's able to track and care for and keep up with and maintain and, and make a wonderful profit from, but here's this larger world he doesn't know about. And Job is reminded, "I'm not what I thought I was." That should make sense of your pain, and it's something the New Testament would teach you to, to make sense of your pain. Turning your Bibles to Romans chapter nine, Romans nine eighteen in a theological context. And the topic of salvation, which is not unrelated to what's going on in Job. The Apostle Paul writes in in Romans 9.18, So then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. God is above. He is over. And all the earth belongs to Him. The storm clouds, the wild donkeys, Pharaoh's heart is in the part of this passage. And He has a glorious redemptive purpose. Keep reading. Verse 22, Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called from the Jews, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There is a grand design. And there is a grand rescue plan to save those who are lost. And there's wrath that's poured out. There are vessels prepared for destruction, but there are also the redeemed who are going to be made to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to come in to that hope, to that grand design, that righteous sufferer. Remember this is part of what Job is teaching us is that the righteous can suffer at the design of God and if you reject that then you reject Christ. Because he was innocent to the core. Job's innocent can't touch the innocence of Christ. He was perfect in every way. He had done not only had done nothing to deserve any that he that happened but he had done every good thing he could. He 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 loved to do the father's will and he he kept it at every point of the law. And yet he suffered. He suffered indignities at the hands of men. He suffered the indignities of coming into this world. And he suffered a death that was deserved for someone who had done wicked things. How much worse is the offense of what happened to Christ than what happened to Job? And yet it was God's sovereign design in order to rescue those who would be redeemed. God's world is ordered. Even the dark is deeply ordered. These things that are unknown to us, man's fall into sin, all the terrors of the fallen world, all are going to a glorious end. Your confession of faith teaches you this. As confession of faith five seven says, as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it taketh care of His church and disposeth, disposeth all things to the good thereof. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to assuage the wrath of God against our sin, for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you could also read that because he himself has suffered when tested, he is able to help those who are being tested. Friends, Job was terribly misguided when he accused God of doing wrong. But he was right in this. He went to God and he looked to God and he said, God, at the end of the day, you have to be my deliverer. I have no hope outside of you. And friends, if Job can go, you have so much more confidence. For Again, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we pray that we would know your sovereign wisdom and that we would celebrate it. That we would see your goodness and your mercy even to that which you extend to the, the, the smallest and farthest ranging of your creatures, that we would know that you have not forgotten us and that you have not stopped loving us, whatever pain is in our world. And pray, Father, that we would look to Christ and know that the righteous can suffer, and it was your design that the righteous one would suffer, that we might be rescued from ourselves and from our sin and from this world. Give us this hope today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We encourage you to come back tonight, 5.30 p.m. We'll close out the Lord's Day, and you're thinking, God has a second speech. Is there more that needs to be said? And there is. And you want to come back and hear it because it's even more glorious than the...